Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back to the Educated Home Buyer Live. This is where we answer your mortgage and real estate questions live. If you've been here before, thanks for coming back. If you're new to the show, we appreciate you being here. Josh, my esteemed guest, mortgage professional, welcome back. I thought you were going to torture us with another round of that music, but uh, you you cut it off there at the last minute, thankfully. Oh boy, here we go. This guy. So what has happened since last Wednesday? Uh, for those of you who are, are here every week, you know, we kind of do a little update as we start talking a little bit about the economy, what's happening with inflation, what's happening with rates, what's happening with the housing market before we dive into questions. So big news over the last week is interest rates, uh, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit more detail with Josh in just a moment. Uh, kind of talk about where we were this time last week, where we are today, what we're expecting. This week, the big news uh, comes on Friday, PCE data. Uh, comes out um, and really is the measure that the Fed has always used in the past with regards to inflation, where it's headed, where it's going, uh, or where, you know, all of that good stuff. So that's going to be the news that comes out on Friday. Uh, but at the moment, we've got some news on FHA, which we're going to chat about. We're going to talk about inventory. We're just going to talk about the housing market in general. But Josh, let's talk, let's start today's episode and talk a little bit about rates. Yeah. Um, you know, before we jumped on here, you and I went through the 10 year up 17 basis points from the last time we were here last Wednesday. So um, it's a proxy for what happens with interest rates. So in, in general, we're up less than a quarter percent since this time last week. And we had the, the President's hol Day holiday in there. Um, we were talking last week. We're hoping to hold maybe hit 390 on the 10 year. Um, we're a few, few bips over that right now. Seem to have support somewhere uh, 401, maybe 411. Worst case, um, the the big thing that changed is we saw the hot CPI figures early part of the month. Even though we have seasonal adjustments that accounted for the majority of that, still saw inflation moderating uh, month over month, but not as much as the market liked. Today we got the the Fed minutes. We'll talk about um, some of the things that they were talking about at that last meeting, but that's not um, super helpful at this point because that was just a few days after CPI, and we've had more data come since then. So basically what the markets have concluded off of the last three weeks of data is that the Fed will stay higher for longer. You know, we were thinking best case, we would have one more quarter point hike right now, probably guaranteed that we're going to have at least two quarter point hikes and possibly three. Third one seems to be priced into the market. And for some reason, the market also, uh, the futures markets are pricing in a cut sometime in December. You know, if we go back and, and talk about uh, a review, what you and I were talking about in, in December and January, we thought that was a little aggressive, thinking that the Fed's going to cut. They want to remain restrictive for an extended period of time. So I don't see cuts on the horizon. And right now, I think our, our best case would be, uh, you know, two more quarter point hikes uh, at this point. No, no, agreed. So um, with that, we're going to look at some charts. But before we dive into the charts, uh, you know, a lot of you guys listen to us on the podcast, right? Because we take this episode after every Wednesday, we put it, we take the audio, we strip the audio and make a podcast out of it, which posts on Fridays. 
But those of you who aren't familiar with the podcast, we actually just recorded an episode which dropped this past Tuesday, which is the, you know, answers the questions that a lot of you guys have when it comes to understanding the loan estimate. You know, the loan estimate is a document you receive when you get a loan from a mortgage professional, right? It gives you an opportunity to compare lenders, gives you an opportunity to see what you're being charged. We go over that in depth, probably too much depth for the majority of people, but a lot of depth to really help you become that educated home buyer. So if you have questions about the loan estimate, if you're going through that process, it's important. Go back, check out that podcast episode uh, because it really gives you the information that you probably want to know when going through it. Um, and if you like it, rate us, review us, let us know what you think. And then um, if you're interested in seeing the charts that we're going to talk about tonight, we'll post those uh, in the community, which there's a link for that below as well. So Josh, before we dive into these uh, charts, anything you want to add? No, just uh, again, you and I were talking this morning. Mortgage rates are going to follow the direction of inflation right mm -hmm. now, not not Fed hikes. So what regardless of what the Fed's going to do, I don't think the market has changed all that much of what they expect the Fed is going to do right now. They're not as certain as they were a month ago about inflation trending down. So when we get back to the mortgage stuff, some of the, the later charts, we can talk about that a, a little bit more. Um, I, I think this is overblown in the short run. Um, but it's going to take a couple months to, to sort out. We were getting a, a lot of mixed signals. There are hot numbers coming out showing that the mm -hmm. economy is really strong. And then there's some numbers showing the economy is not so strong. And it's going to take a few months to see which camp is correct. Yeah, and it's going to take some some months of the how the data has been revised and how it's calculated for those reflections to actually take place. I mean, we should start to see it in the jobs numbers, right? Because the data, the way they calculate it is now uh, baked into those numbers. Uh, but the same thing, you know, with, with regards to inflation, they revised some of those calculations. So some things were weighing a little bit heavier in this last month's calculations than in previous calculations. So going forward, hopefully, you know, comparison to the comparison rather to the previous month, you shouldn't have these, these crazy, um, readings that that we've seen over the last you know, last couple of months because of of how they change those weightings. But nevertheless, uh, we're going to start tonight's episode by looking at inventory, like we had the last couple of weeks. Uh, inventory nationwide still going down, right? Trending down doesn't look like it's flattening out at the moment. Uh, down another one and a half percent week over week to four hundred and thirty six thousand five hundred and fifty eight homes here in Orange County also trending down, sitting today at 2,272 homes, HB 156. And when I say these numbers, I'm not just talking single family, I'm talking condos, townhomes, everything. So inventory is going the wrong direction at the moment, guys. That's that's not a good sign for buyers. It's not a good sign for housing in general because we need, we need property. We need property to be able to sell property. Uh, this is the seven-day average. Again, this chart shows a little bit of a flattening um, in the number of homes coming to the market. So we'll see if that reflects in, in the next week's uh, overall inventory chart, but it does show a little bit of flattening, uh, but still shows that we're down nearly 47% from the levels of 2019, which is very, very important because that's the last real normal year in real estate because 20, 2021, 2022 were anything but normal. Uh, this is weekly new inventory. Again, um, inventory down week over week. Um, we had 55, what is it, 25, 24% fewer than last year. And again, part of the reason you look at this chart is, is 
to kind of look seasonality, what happens in the market from January to December? You typically start to see some picking up here. You see a couple couple times when, when you have increases and you have decreases. So at the moment, nothing to be overly concerned with. But as we move through the next couple of months, if we see these numbers just move sideways, that's a problem because you know that then then we're not seeing the inventory actually come to the market, which again would be a bad sign. Percent of properties with recent price reduction. So less and less sellers are out there. Less sellers are having to reduce prices. Only 31% of sellers are having to do some sort of price reduction. And a lot of that, again, stems from rates being lower, buyer demand, you know, people getting off the fence. Uh, next one, again, shows home prices have kind of held steady through this whole thing. So once we saw that drop in rate, we actually saw home prices jump up a little bit. Uh, which again, kind of put that flooring in housing. But if we see interest rates continue to do what they've done over the last couple of weeks or stay at this level, you're going to see um, that that likely turn down again pretty quickly um, with the median home price because higher rates are going to continue to impact the housing numbers. Whereas if we see lower rates, we're likely to see that flooring in housing. housing. This is just a chart showing you what's happened uh, with rates over the last, you know, what is that? couple six months or so almost a year um you know we saw rates come down uh you know from from the peaks back late last year and now we're starting to trend back up a little bit josh we're looking at the 10-year treasury yield here before we look at that one jeb uh, let's let's look at this um every wednesday we get the uh loan applications index we look at purchases there are very few refis right now um, less than 10% of the market. So in looking at it, here's what we want to look at. We just showed what happened with interest rates. And actually, just a real quick look. We go back here, peaked in November up seven and a quarter-ish, got all the way back down to 6%. So we talked about this slide down from November through January, coincided with the seasonality of all the people in November, December that put their house hunting on hold came back into the market. They were greeted with better interest rates. There was definitely a pop in activity. How much of that was rates? How much of that was just uh, the seasonality of the market? Well, when we look at this uh, purchase applications index, you can see that about that same time, November, when rates started trending down, we saw an increase, another spike here at the beginning of the year, and we're back down. So lowest level of a purchase application index coincides with the highest rates we've seen since November. So it tells you the market is very sensitive to interest rates. So where do we go from here? This chart here again shows the 10 year, the challenge zone here, two times we made a run, three times we made a pretty solid run at 3.4. The market rejected that, got ahead of itself. Market says traders said, Three, four, um, sort of a brick wall. We're not going to hit that. And now we've run up here back to this three, nine, almost 4% level. As long as we stay under that 4.2 up there, uh, it tells us that we are on a downtrend. So we want to see this trend line from the top continue to stay intact and want to stay in this range. If we make a run up above 411, that would be negative in the short run. So this hopeful support zone, we're hoping somewhere about right where we're at, we hit support. Does that mean that we're going to turn around and make a run at 340 sometime soon? I don't think so. Jeb and I have talked the last two, three, four weeks. Um, it's probably going to be April data released in May before we see something that's going to possibly push us to the bottom or even through the bottom end of this range. And there's a lot of things that can happen between now and then. So we just have to watch it play out. Um, 
Jeb, a piece of good news that we mm -hmm. had today for FHA borrowers. We've talked with we the question both the last couple of weeks. Hey, I've heard that Fannie Mae is making changes and loans are getting more expensive. What they did is increased the loan level price adjustments for most borrowers and decreased the loan level price adjustments, decreased the charges for a handful of riskier borrowers at the bottom of, of the, the grid there. Lower down payments, lower credit scores already gone into that's crazy we don't know why the government decided to charge the better qualified borrowers more and charge the lower qualified borrowers less but we saw fha come back which we've talked about fha will be more attractive relative to conventional loans for most borrowers due to those changes this will make it even more so so loans up to 726 200 we're looking at um 50 basis points from uh, from 55 basis points from 85 basis points. So it's about 0.30 across the board lower. And I have a spreadsheet up here. I've just got to find it. So what does that actually mean for most borrowers? If you're buying a $350,000 house, means that payment's $86 lower. Buying a $600,000 house, $147 lower. $900,000 house, $221 lower. So big picture, what this tells us is, more borrowers are going to be going FHA because of the two changes that Fannie and Freddie just made and what uh, HUD did here in terms of mortgage insurance premiums. So this is good over the long haul. When you look at it, you may say, hey, 55 basis points, that's a relatively low upfront mortgage insurance premium or monthly mortgage insurance premium. And it is, but you still have with the FHA loan, the 1.75% upfront. So when you look at a, a comparable split premium, Jeb, on a, a conventional loan, for most borrowers, 1.75 upfront would get rid of your mortgage insurance entirely. So FHA is still more expensive mortgage insurance wise than a conventional loan, but the rate is going to be much lower and the monthly payment is going to be much lower for the majority of our borrowers. So I would fully expect that you're going to see increased market share for FHA as we go forward. Absolutely. Can we talk or, or, or can we say buying votes? For, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, it's, you know. It's um, almost midterm elections. Are we uh, are we looking at, um, you know, I don't know. Anyway, uh, let's talk about this. 20% of homes sold above final list price. So, Josh, I thought everything was crashing. All homes were selling below the asking price. What are you talking so about? So if you look at it from the peak, we had, what, 40 something percent of homes selling above list price. And, and that almost seems low. You remember we were having the conversations here every week with all of the, the listeners here talking about now ah, there's 30 offers. We had to go $50,000 over list price. That almost seems low that we only peaked in the high 40s most of, of these uh, people seem to be paying more. And now we're still at 20%. I can give you an example, Jeb, for those of you in Southern California that know anything about this community, property buyer making an offer on a property in Wildemar, just outside of Lake Elsinore, generally lower prices than Lake Elsinore, which are some of the lowest prices in Riverside County. So from a price standpoint, one of the most affordable areas you can buy in Southern California. My buyer wants land. So he wanted a half acre, finds a flipped manufactured home. So double wide, very nice. Someone went through, did a really nice renovation on it. White shaker cabinets, the white and, and gray beige, everything looked really nice about it. And for him, he was getting his half acre. They were asking 430 for it. Our final offer after a seller multiple counter was 461 and we did not get the property. So this isn't a trophy property, Beverly Hills, Malibu on the beach. This is 
an entry level home and we're seeing that level of interest and if you look at it again very nice and clean good square footage for the price even though it was manufactured and a half acre which was very important to this buyer and obviously several other buyers so this chart that story that i just told you there are still good properties are are hard to get under contract largely because jeb the chart that you showed earlier we don't have a lot of supply so when one of these yeah, nice homes comes sure. to market the buyers that are out there are going after them hard yeah absolutely uh housing starts um not seasonally adjusted so we can see here josh i know you threw the chart in but you know housing start everything is moving lower right starting to tick downward um less less building less permit pulling actually taking place but what were you going to add to that well the important part there is jeb what which what type of housing starts or what are we charting here the intent of the housing starts so the red line is single family homes that are built for sale so a builder builds a home they want to sell it to you the viewer here who are wanting to get into the market well if you look that red line is now under the blue line the blue line is built for rent so housing starts right now builders are building uh starting more single family homes being built to rent than build to sell. So it's it's crazy to us, Jeb, you and I here in Southern California, I don't know of any builders building homes for rent here in Southern California, but obviously there are other parts of the country where they are doing this. So anyone that thinks, hey, there's a giant crash coming, I don't think anyone is building with the intent to hold and rent is looking at numbers thinking that that is the case. They're looking at the yield you can get for invested dollars. Um, this gives us headwinds. We're talking about problems with supply. We want supply to, to increase. We would like rates to come down to help affordability and keep some type of supply demand balance there so that home prices can stay relatively level. But this is just another factor telling us we are probably not going to see the increase in supply that we would like to sometime in the near future. And it also tells you that the folks out here making their crash videos, bubble videos, they're going to be sadly disappointed. This doesn't tell us that home prices can't come down. It tells us we absolutely don't have a recipe for massive widespread decreases in home prices. Um, Jeb, we, we have a comment in here and we'll get to this. The only reason I threw this one in here is we've talked about one of the wild cards for inflation going forward mm -hmm. is energy. And this is telling us that from 20 or 2000 to 2025, China went from 10 to 33% of the global electricity demand. Um, we've seen in the news that they are considering all sorts of things to meet their energy demands. We talked a little bit, hinted a little bit about nuclear last week, nuclear, wind, solar, they have everything on the table. So this tells us that there is a large amount of demand for energy coming from around the world. But China, um, as Africa becomes more developed, their energy demands are greater. So the wild card or the concern for me, the only thing that I could see long-term that is inflationary is the cost of energy and, and fuel. So it was interesting to, to see this chart here. But moving forward, um, we got the, the minutes from the last meeting from the Fed. And we said earlier, not super instructive, just because we've had a lot of data since then. But since then, but almost all participants at the Fed's January 31 to February 1 meeting agreed that it was appropriate to, interest, to raise interest rates by 25 basis points. So they were at 75, they went down to 50 almost unanimous uh, agreement that 25 basis points is the right number. And so what we're likely to see going forward. They said inflation in the last three months has eased, but they need to see more progress. Risk to economic outlook weighted to the downside. So this month, what are we talking about? What is forced rates higher? Everyone's seeing these numbers going, oh, the economy is much more resilient and stronger than we're thinking. And yet 
20 days ago, they're saying that the risk and economic outlook are weighted to the downside. So some participants saw elevated prospect of recession in 2023. This year, Fed board members finally kind of acknowledging that. So those are all things that should have been positive for interest rates. Now, these also came from their comments in the minutes, things that are negative for rates. Restrictive monetary policy needed until the Fed is confident in inflation falling to 2%. Adding that process was likely to take some time. So code for we are not going to be cutting rates anytime soon. Job market very tight. Labor demand outstripping available supply. Continued tight job market would contribute upward pressure to inflation. We showed a chart a couple of weeks ago that that is not happening. It, you know, wage increases are moderating. Wage increases are a little bit less than uh, the last inflation readings we've seen and moderating. So their fear is what their economic models tell them will happen with the tightness that we have in the labor market. And then the last one they threw in their upside risk for inflation, including China's economic reopening. That last chart that we just showed you mm -hmm. there, they're going to have more energy demand. They're going to be using more natural resources. All these things are inflationary. Um, and then the last one is Russia's war in Ukraine. And we've talked about what that does to the global energy supply and what it can do to fuel prices. So those are the, the big things that we were looking at this week. Well, that and you mentioned job uh, market would contribute upward pressure to inflation. But if you go look at the three month average chart of employment growth, you can actually see it's coming down. It's still positive, but the numbers are starting to reflect you know, a downward pressure on jobs when you start to average over the course of that three month period. So next couple of months clearly will be interesting with all of the data. Friday is really the big day um, with PCE. And uh, we'll obviously have the updates on that next week. So with that said, you guys have stood the test of time. The first 23 minutes, we are going to start diving in to why you guys got here. Uh, and that is talking about some questions before we do that, Josh, if you're watching, you'll notice I'm wearing a hooded sweatshirt. Why would you be wearing a hooded sweatshirt in California? Because it's seven degrees outside guys. It's seven degrees and we got 300 mile an hour winds out there. It's absolutely freezing. It, it sounds, Jeb, like we have um, Celsius, Fahrenheit, and then California weather, if, if that's seven degrees. I'm starting to question, you know, when I moved to California, I was sold this bill of goods that the weather's always good. I'm starting to question why I'm here. And, you know, if something doesn't change soon, I'll be doing this from a different location, Joshua. Where? Nevertheless, what, what location we have? I don't know. I don't know. I hear prices are crashing everywhere, everywhere. and I'm going to go buy a house in every state and decide no. where I want to live. Nominate you guys in the comments over there. Nominate where Jeb should relocate his Ooh, family to. That would be I good. like that. I like, like that. that would be fantastic. I should have done the map for that one so we could have seen exactly where we stand. All right, guys, we're going to start. We got Jennifer Legos back tonight or she was at some point. She might be here. She might not. But anyway, Jennifer is a moderator. So be nice to her. Uh, Anya came out strong with a question and just says, how busy are you? Uh, I don't know if that was a, uh, a rhetorical question, um, or, you know, what, what was going on with, with the question there exactly. But Josh, are you busy? Are you getting people calling, wanting to buy homes, uh, wanting to get approved rather to buy homes? I think we've actually talked about this on the show. Yeah, we have. I'm as, as busy as ever. And you say, we, we say sell and do what? Well, busy doing what? 
talking to a lot of folks who aren't qualified to buy what they want. And I'm not saying it's anything bad about them. I'm saying that with a 4% rate, they would qualify just fine mm -hmm. at a six and a half percent rate, not so much, or they qualify for a condo and they're like, I'm not moving my family into a condo. I want a single family residence. Mm -hmm. Additionally, we've seen this on the show. We have these comments. Hey, did you guys see Wells Fargo laid off so many people in lending? Did you see Rocket laid off so many people? Well, I've got two less team members than I had a year ago. So I'm doing more in each file than I was doing. Do we have business? Are we profitable? Absolutely. Uh, but the market is very, very different than 2020 and 2021 when rates were rock bottom and lots of purchases because lots of people qualified and everyone either could lower their monthly payment or get cash out to improve their property or buy an additional property at very favorable terms. No. And with me, am I busy? I'm not busy. Um, I'm closing deals, right? Getting one closed. Should close. Should have closed yesterday. Probably going to close tomorrow. One closing at the end of the month for a viewer here uh, that came from the channel. Um, you know, have an off-market deal that I put into escrow, um, larger deal over in North Tustin area. And that's something I want to point out to you guys. You know, in talking to other agents, talking to um, in office meetings, hearing other agents talk, there's going to be a lot of off-market transactions that happen, guys, properties that never hit the market. So if you're trying to do this solely by looking at the, the, the MLS and not contacting an agent until you find a house, I think you're hurting yourself. You need to let people know what you're looking for so that if they come across it, it they can reach out to you because th that that is really, I mean, I, I see a lot of that taking place in a lot of conversations. People are finding the buyer without ever putting the house on the market. So I, 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 I don't know if it's a trend. I don't know if it's just 2023. I don't know if it's, you know, a seller, not super serious, but if the right deal comes along, they're willing to sell. But either way, it's something uh, to pay attention to. Um, in addition to that, I had a, uh, somebody that I was showing property to a year ago. <laughs> Imagine that, uh, Josh was actually talking to him about doing the loan. We put in several offers. We put in strong offers. He just never got them accepted. He called me today and wants to see two properties this weekend. Um, so it's funny, like in looking at, you know, where buyers were, what they went through and when they're willing to come back to the market, we're starting to see more of that now. So there's definitely people out there wanting to buy, um, but less of it, right? We just have less inventory. That's why when I said, I'm, am I busy? No, I'm not busy. I could be a lot busier just because there's just, there's no property here locally, um, in, in the big scheme of things. So things are, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to get people into escrow and there's just a lack of people wanting to sell because of, of where we are in the market. Some of it has to do with time of the year. Other things have to do with locking in low interest rates and all that good stuff. But Jeff, did, did, a couple, yep. did a couple of guys with a housing podcast do an episode a couple of weeks back about all these tips and tricks that if you are in the market, what you should be doing to maximize your prospects of the episode was actually about getting a deal in the current market. Mm -hmm. But sometimes getting a deal is getting a home with such limited supply and the off market stuff is really important. And we talked about how to get in front of agents who may have access to off market deals. And I believe that podcast episode uh, is maybe two or three weeks ago on the Educated Home Buyer. So check that out. Um, ZL, ZL says, do underwriters take veteran property tax exemptions into consideration when calculating DTI? So maybe, Josh, what is a property tax exemption uh, for a veteran? Um, and then answer the question. So most states for a veteran 
and especially a disabled veteran will give some degree of property tax exemption. So here in California for a 100% disabled veteran, you can exclude 100% of the property value from taxation. So if we say we're at one and a quarter taxes on average in general here in California, you take 100,000 of value away, you save about $1,250 a month. So the question is, do underwriters take that into account when they're calculating your debt to income ratio? And the answer is no, because the house hasn't been reassessed and they don't know that you're going, they can see that you're eligible for it, but they don't know that you're going to qualify for it. Now, a group that I'm a part of, Vetted VA, along with the Association of Independent Mortgage Experts, have lobbied several states and we're working with the ones that are most open and amenable to it. Uh, Maryland has made the change. Uh, do not quote me 100% on that. I believe Maryland was the first. I think we're close to Texas um, doing the same, where they are putting the, the verbiage of the eligibility for it to a degree that lenders can use it at time of qualifying, because it can make a huge difference. Some states, for a disabled veteran, they make them exempt entirely from, from property taxes. That can make a massive difference in your qualifications, but if you can't use it at time of qualifying, it doesn't do a whole heck of a lot of good for you. No, no, it definitely doesn't. Um, and Big G has a comment here, basically just says gas is going up in California, not a good sign for the next inflation reading. No, Josh talked a little bit about energy, about fuel prices, definitely a problem. I mean, I we have a tenant, right? I have a client that has a tenant and a property um, that I, I help them manage. And the tenant, the last couple of months has, uh, he reached out maybe three months ago and basically said, listen, I'm having a difficult time coming up with the full payment. Can you reduce the rent for this month? And then I'll pay it all at one time. And so we agreed the rent was $29.50. When I say we, my client agreed, but I'm relaying the message uh, to reduce it to $24.50 for two months in a row. And then that additional thousand that was owed would be paid in January. So he did. So at the moment, you know, the client called me for February and said, Listen, I'm still behind. I can only pay two thousand right now, and he still owes about fifteen hundred um, from from the the additional nine fifty plus the five hundred that he owes, and so he's down about fifteen hundred. And says, "Can I pay it in the next couple of days?" So I call the client today and I say, "Hey, we have you know kind of a little bit issue here. We got a, a great tenant who is, a, I mean, he's very transparent, calls with any issues, takes very good care of the property, but having a difficult time paying." And he said you know, does he doesn't want to be a charity case, my client, but he's like, listen, I get it, but we need to figure out what the solution is. Absolutely. So I said, well, we'll call him and figure out if he's got a solution because, you know, clearly everything is going up. Like we're not raising his rent, but fuel cost is going up. Food cost is going up. You know, all of these things that are hitting your bottom line. So what are you going to do differently to be able to next month come up with this payment? There's got to be a change in your plan. Fortunately, the conversation went well, and the fact that they have additional income coming in now, um, that they'll be able to make the payment and not have any issues going forward. But if you're out there and you're struggling at the moment with the rising cost and these these different things, it makes it difficult to to catch up. Um, and so, you know, hopefully inflation moderates. But just as inflation moderates, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to see the prices of some of these things come down. That's that's the issue. Uh, but I just kind of got off on a tangent there and thought I would tell a story. So if you're a renter and you're having trouble, the moral of the story here is to be transparent, have the conversation, communicate, communicate right? I mean, nobody wants to kick somebody out of a house, especially when you're feeling the pain yourself. My clients, like I feel the pain, you know, 
He's he runs a business. He's like, I'm I'm feeling all of these things he's feeling just in a different place. So I understand and I want to help, but I can't do this every single month. So again, long way of saying have the conversation. Be upfront. Talk to your talk to your talk to your landlord if you're struggling. Um, Anya, we talked a little bit about this. Uh, do you want to talk any more about rates? Um from from that perspective, do we think they'll continue to go up fast? No. Um, do we think they're going to come down anytime soon? I don't know that we have lots of good data. We, you and I talked earlier today. We have PCE data, um, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. It hasn't been traded like CPI has um, for the last six or seven months, but PCI did not have those seasonal adjustments that CPI did, and it may be more favorable in terms of the inflation read. Um, I can't guarantee that. Don't know that to be a fact. But if we think inflation was trending down and they didn't have the adjustments that made CPI look less favorable than it was, it could be something that would move the market. But I don't think it's going to move us uh, significantly. I think we're going to kind of be in this range of, of where we're at. I think we'll say stay under 7%, but say 65 to 7% for the foreseeable future. Now, we had a, a sort of a more interesting question. Ronald asks, what's your prediction on mortgage rates for summertime? Now, remember, predictions are not super valuable. Um, our, our best guess still comes back to the data moderating. So we said the wild card is energy costs. Some are trending up. Someone else commented that natural gas prices are tanking. So for now, that is true. But we're also coming out of the months when natural gas usage for home heating is, is decreasing. But my belief and expectation is that inflation will continue to moderate. Um, the so-called hot readings on the economy are not as hot and as strong as what we're seeing. Just like the Fed is worried about the downside risk to the economy, possible recession later on in the year, I think we will see rates lower. Um, do they get all the way down to 5%? I don't know, but a 55 6% rate seems reasonable, but probably later in the year than what we were thinking. We were thinking late spring, early summer, and we're probably talking middle to, to late summer. And depending on what happens with energy prices from there, um, we'll see what happens with inflation. All right. Good stuff. Um, let's see what we have here. Uh, orange pulp. Uh, maybe a dumb question, but if I have two or three recent model year cars, but they're all paid off, does, does that affect the home loan application in any way, Josh? Not really. We still have a section on there where you can put it down as an asset that's owned. Um, I don't know that it's really taken into account. Uh, it's not a necessarily a positive there, even though it's an asset that you own. If you got in trouble, if you were like Jeb's tenant that needs to pay his rent, you could sell one of those cars and pay your rent for a few months. Should be considered a positive, but with modern automated underwriting, don't know that that's going to do anything positive for you. You know in the real world that you have to have insurance for it. There can be storage costs. So there's something of a negative there, but those are not things that show up on your credit report, things that we would actually itemize and show and count in your debt to income ratio. So nothing real positive, nothing real negative there either. Uh, Jessica has an interesting question. Do you think student loan payments will be paused once again come June? If not, what sort of impact do you think this would possibly have on inflation and market? So if you would have asked me that question, a year ago, I would have said no chance. There's, they have to start paying these off at some point. Me playing the other side of this, realizing, again, you're talking elections, you're talking a lot of things um, political to, to get votes. I could see it being extended again um, for that reason. No other reason alone. I don't even know why we're still having the conversation that student loans have been um, paused or extended this long. But if they've been willing to do it this long, why not? What's another six months? What's another three months? I I don't know. Uh, but the impact on the market, I, I don't, 
it, it I mean, it could impact the market negatively if you were because I well, if you were, I and take that back. I believe there's a lot of people out there that have student loans that have been paused that are using those excess funds. I use excess in quotations to do fun things and to and and put that money in other places, which could put them in a different position if that had to um, be spent towards student loans. In fact, it might help bring inflation down if that money wasn't being spent in the economy. But I also believe those people are probably, um, they could be putting it to good use and, and paying down the student loan, even though the payments aren't due and, and hitting the principal and all this stuff. But I don't think the majority of people are doing that. Jeb, it could be just me, but it sounds like all roads keep leading back to this Educated Homebuyer podcast, because next week we're going to do a deep dive on student loans and how it impacts qualifying for a mortgage. So the reason why it won't have much, if any, impact on the housing market is borrowers all the way through CARES Act forbearance. Forbearance, we can't just ignore that student loan. We can't go, hey, this guy owes $100,000, but hey, they're under forbearance. There's zero there, so let's qualify them as if it doesn't exist. So depending on the loan program, we can document what the fully amortizing payment would be if you're required to make payments. We can document what the income-based, income-driven repayment payment would be if you were making payments. We can use a synthetic number, which varies anywhere from a little less than a half percent all the way up to 1%. So it's been calculated into borrowers' debt-to-income ratios. And if we make the payment start up again, it actually just makes it a little easier for borrowers to document. Most of my borrowers for the last five, six, seven years with significant student loans are in some type of income-based repayment plan, which is pretty minimal, not zero, but we couldn't use the zero for qualifying anyways. So I don't think it's going to really impact demand for housing at all. But Jeb, you hit the nail on the head. Certainly could be um, something putting the brakes on the economy and leading to slower inflation. Because if you go from having zero payment, and now you have a $275 payment, a $775 payment, I literally see clients with three and $400,000 of student loans, even in an income driven repayment plan, it's a significant payment. So when you have money that comes out of discretionary spending and goes to paying back your student loans, that is going to stop spending throughout the economy that would lead to lower levels of inflation. We don't know though, right? It's just a guess. Uh, Alexis basically says, there's no way I could live in seven degree weather. So I, I was being a bit facetious when I said it was seven degrees. It's really probably 57. And you're going to think, Jeb, you're crazy. 57 is not cold. And I would normally agree with you, except for there is honestly like 30 mile an hour winds outside. And so it's freezing outside. And therefore, I'm wearing a sweatshirt. So that's it. I hope that next week I can come in a T-shirt. I don't think it's likely to happen. In shorts, you know, tank top, if you will. I don't wear tank tops. But if I did, I would wear one if it was nice out. Where do we go with this, Josh? I just I went down a rabbit hole. Okay. Um, I saw a really good question that I wanted to get to. In the meantime, uh, Jesse, Jesse said, thanks a lot for making your jokes about your 57 degree weather. It is literally eight degrees here. See, but in you knew what you were getting into. You knew going to Colorado, you could get eight degrees. Living in Southern California, I was promised that it was 70 year round. That's it. That's yeah. the difference. Look, before we answer a question, let's go yep. back and talk about the important poll of the night. We have many suggestions for where you should live. And these suggestions will tell us whether the viewers like you or don't like you. Jessica says Hawaii. Zach says Cabo. I, I like I like Zach's. I think Zach's I, is I, the winner. Inessa says Florida. 
Just Alexio wants to send you to Alaska. I believe that's a viewer that does not like you, much like Bellrock, who wants to see you in Michigan. Bolo triple zero H says South Florida also could be nice. Darren Buttery, a longtime viewer of the show, who I would think is a fan of yours and likes you, wants you to go to Illinois, which for a million reasons would be one of the worst decisions a human could ever make. World <laughs> Trekker has got Maui, Hawaii. Anya wants you with her in Northeast Florida. Um, I think that that covers I think most visiting. Of it. These places is a great idea. I'm actually headed to Cabo or supposed to go to Cabo first week of April. So maybe I just stay. Hopefully by choice. Hopefully I get the choice if I want to stay or not. And I'm not kidnapped and brought to a cartel to stay in Cabo because that would never be a, a good idea. Uh, nevertheless, it would be very hard to uh, to do YouTube videos from down there. You know, when all my stuff's in California. Nevertheless, let's move on. Uh, Alex says, long term, if inventory does not meet demand and prices continue to rise don't we run into a ceiling particularly 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 that's a difficult one if wages stagnate like we're seeing now the answer i think the easy answer is yes i mean prices cannot go up forever regardless of supply and demand imbalance to some extent i mean wages are are a key driver rates are a key driver um you know, rates would obviously have to go down considerably. Uh, you know, if rates went down considerably and, and inventory didn't increase, you would just have that inventory depleted and then you'd really have a stalemate. So, Josh, what do you thought? If we still if we still had three percent interest rates, prices would be considerably higher. So the 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 premise here is 100 percent correct. There is a ceiling and let's look at it. You know, we, we showed this chart earlier, but applications to buy homes are going down. There is like today, there are not less people who would like to buy a home than there were a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. There are less people who feel they can afford and enter into the market. So when we're looking at the affordability figures, rates higher, we see these numbers lower. So from, from that perspective, you're 100% correct. I mean, the second part of it, if wages stagnate, like we're saying, we're not seeing wages stagnate. We've shown the charts here, you know, most job leavers are up 12 to 15% and job stayers are up five to 6% uh, year over year. It's not keeping pace with inflation. So if we're saying that's stagnant, you know, okay, I, I, can, I can buy into that, but 100% correct. We do not have a recipe for home value increases because we don't have a recipe for more able demand than there is supply. We have very limited supply, but we right now with current rates have a limited uh, amount of able demand for homes. There's plenty of willing demand. There's a limited amount of able demand, people who can qualify and are willing to step up and apply and take out a mortgage to, to buy the home. So great question. All right. So Jesse has a question here that I want to address real quick. It says, from what I've seen, Colorado inventory was up over 130%. Do you think home prices will come down with the increase in inventory? So something very important to note, Jesse, is that where the context, like where is that number coming from, that 130% increase based off what? What number? So take, for example, Orange County. Inventory is up about 100% from this time last year. But we have you know, we're, we're today we're sitting at 2,200 and what I say, 74 homes. Historically speaking, 2017 to 2019 average, that three-year average of what we would consider a normal market, this time of the year, we'd have about 4,800 homes on the market. So about 100% more than we have today. So even though inventory numbers show that they're increased, say 130% in Colorado, what where are you coming from with that 130% increase? It's like saying foreclosures are up a thousand percent. Okay. 
well, we didn't have any foreclosures last year. And now there's a thousand percent increase. Now you have 10 or whatever, you know, so could it mean home prices are coming down? Sure. Does it absolutely mean that just because inventory's increased? No, it does not. Uh, in fact, use my market, for example, you know, Orange County. Inventory's increased. Not a lot of inventory on the market, historically speaking. Prices have moved down um, to some extent, but they're not, you're not seeing any big reductions. In fact, the last couple of deals that I've negotiated, put offers in for clients have have sold either at the asking price or above the asking price. So it just, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, find an agent in your market that understands the market and can guide you a little bit. Me being here in California, talking about Colorado is no different than somebody in Florida talking about a crash happening in California. It's they don't understand the market here. They don't know the market here. Probably shouldn't pay attention to them if you get my drift and where I'm going with that. Uh, with that said, um, if you need a referral to an agent in Colorado, anywhere in the country, you can use that link below. You can also find a mortgage professional in one of those states by doing that as well. And if you'd really like to hear Josh slurp his straw really, really loudly, just listen to the audio because that's what he does. That's good. Just comes right in there. I'm going right, to pull some right excerpts. in one ear. I'm going to pull some excerpts of some things that Jeb conveniently forgets that happen four or five times every episode. I'll 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 make a highlight reel of that and play it next week. Please do. Please do. Uh, right. Um, Raul, if I know a guarantee cost of living raise is coming, can I have that included in my numbers now for my loan? So Josh, having a conversation with you, I know I'm going to get a raise. Do you factor that in? Is it coming next month? Is it coming in six months? Uh, we need to have that raise available to make your payment. So depending on the program, we either need to receive a payment. Most likely, you're going to have to have one of those pay stubs prior to close of escrow. If we know it's coming and your employer will say, hey, on March 30th, we're going to have a raise of 5%, we can use that as long as you're closing April 10th and we can document that. Some programs occasionally will allow you to use it if you're going to have it prior to the first payment due, but lenders generally don't like that because there's no guarantee. Your employer could promise it's coming and it never actually comes. That's why they generally want to see at least one pay stub at the new pay rate prior to close of escrow. All right. Thanks for that. Uh, I saw one here about retirement earlier. Eric asked the question, if a person is going to retire in the next few years, income is going to go down uh, a lot from full time to pension income only um, prior to social security. Will it matter to a lender if they know? So, if you told them, hey, I'm going to retire in one year and your employer completes a verification of employment, says, hey, they're going to retire in one year, could present a problem, but that's not generally what happens. I've had lots of buyers, borrowers doing a refinance in the past come and say, hey, I'm going to retire in a year. I want to get some cash out of my home or I want to buy a new home while I still have um, my income to qualify off of. Lenders are not able to discriminate based off of age. They're not able to ask you what your intentions are going forward. If somehow it was divulged in the process, I suppose it could be problematic, but no one is going to ask you, hey, do you can plan to continue working? You know, back in the 80s, there were several lawsuits. People, uh, lenders would ask, hey, ma'am, do you intend on getting pregnant anytime during this process or in the next five years? They can't ask what you're going to do going forward. They can only look and analyze what has happened in the past and what is currently verifiable and documentable today. 
All right, good stuff. Uh, Richard is asking, how do you value solar when selling a house? A system that's paid off and average bill is $15 a month. So I'll start this by saying I'm personally not a huge fan of solar. I, I find very few times when it actually makes sense for someone to have solar on their property. With that said, if you own the solar outright, um, then there could be a benefit to it. Um, when you lease solar, when you uh, borrow solar, you know, just let them put it on your house and and you take a reduced rate. I'm not a fan of that at all. And and how to value that is beyond me. Um, because as an agent on the other side, I'm selling my client against that in every way, shape, or form possible. But if you own it, I, it's hard to say what the value is for someone. Um, you know, getting an idea of what you paid for it, you know, you can't use dollar for dollar on it. It definitely adds some value if the panels are newer. But if you've got older panels, you know, depends on the age of the roof. There's a lot going on there because if the panels are older, you know, likely warranty is going to be gone. Um, if if the roof is is in need of work, the panels have to come off to repair the roof, which is an added cost. Uh, you know, what's the normal utility bill for for you for um, electricity without the solar and try to figure it out. There's not, I don't think there's a hard calculation, Josh, unless you can tell me one of, of how to figure out exactly what it's worth to each person. It's going to be a little bit different. Some people are like, Hey, I, I want to be green and have solar and great and whatever. And I support all of that. I just, I, for what it costs to put it on it versus how long it takes to pay it off. And when your savings per month, for most people, it doesn't make sense. And so you know, I, I didn't answer your question. I realize that. Um, I just gave you a lot of my thoughts on solar, but that's that's where my head was going. And Jeb, I, I think you and I, um, and for most people in Orange County, it's not the numbers don't pencil out. You're so far out before your break even. The people who it can make sense for is you're in Palm Springs. Yeah, you have a pool that Phoenix, you keep year round. You have a pool that you would AC. like to. So all of those things where people have huge utility bills. So if you regularly have four or five months of the year where you got four or five, six hundred dollar month utility bill, it's it's worth considering. For us here at the coast, I have about six weeks where I have a, a big utility bill. We've had a monstrous gas bill uh, the last few months, but uh, other than switching to solar and converting my entire house to electric, I don't know how to fix that. What I will say is I was at an industry conference about three, four months ago, talking to a guy who also owned a solar company. And from talking to him, what I would say is, please, dear God, do not just take an offer from the guy going door to door doing sales. Get two or three comparisons. They actually have a lot of leeway in what they can do with that pricing. And if they feel that you are unsuspecting and unlikely to shop, um, you can get a much higher price than is required. And Jeb's talking about what's your break even period? What are your monthly savings? What does it cost? How long does it take to, to get to savings? Um, the less you can pay for it, the, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. So sorry, we didn't help you at all, Richard. We just gave you our thoughts on solar. Uh, but either way, we appreciate you being here. Uh, let's see. Um, I saw, uh, Nick, Nick says, I've been following your content for a year, uh, or this year, just bought a house in Southern California. Keep up the great content. Appreciate it. Nick, you should have called bro. You should have called. <laughs> we haven't, we haven't heard from you. You bought without yeah. us. What are we doing? You, you didn't use me, bro. No. Um, I'm glad you're finding the, the content valuable. Um, any feelings on reverse mortgages, Josh? Um, 
they are a tool that has a time and a place. So if you look at it, um, they're adjustable rates. So the rates are significantly higher than they have been. Um, talking to a client right now, she's 90 years old um, in good health. So no reason to believe that she's going to be gone anytime soon. But you look at actuarial tables, she's going to get very favorable terms because they don't think she's going to live another 30 years. Um, they're also much safer than they used to be. Uh, in the past, you did not have to take into account the borrower's income and ability to pay taxes, upkeep and maintenance on the home. So lenders would say, hey, here's your reverse mortgage and figure out how you're going to make those payments if you go through all of the cash. So these can be structured many different ways. You can just make your mortgage payment go away. You can get a line of credit. You can get an upfront amount of cash. You can have a hybrid with some upfront cash and then a line of credit. And it's important to know that one of the additional restrictions they've put on the program in the last decade or so is you cannot get your entire lump sum at closing. We had seniors who, um, or either being taken advantage of or just you know were undisciplined and they would take all of their money out of their house they would spend it all in a year or two and go great now i don't have that equity to fall back on to and take another reverse mortgage so they're much safer than they used to be there's a time and a place with rates elevated it's something that you want to consider closely um, and you want to make sure that it's something that you need to do or is going to make a, a significant difference in your quality of life but the product itself is a good product it's just not right for everyone all right. I like it. Um, I'm just looking. Ed says, can I lease out a house with a clause that the tenant vacates after a year? Um, I'm, I don't understand that question, Josh. Maybe you do you understand it? I, it's just asking, basically, it's a 12-month lease. So uh, with the I, clause of the tenant vacate after a year, you're leasing them the property for a year. There's nothing in that lease that says you have to allow them to hold over at the end of the lease. I believe that's the gist okay. of what they're asking. Okay, fair enough. There you go. I just did, I guess I didn't. Okay, yeah, nevertheless, doesn't matter. Marco is asking, what are you seeing in terms of price reductions or improvements, generally speaking? I'm not seeing a lot here personally, um, just because there's not a lot of uh, inventory that's just sitting on the market at the moment, um, at least in our market, right? Other markets might be experiencing things a little bit differently. Uh, price, you know, I the last couple of properties I've seen though, you know, that I've had clients call me about, it looks to, it almost looks as if the agents are pricing them lower on purpose, which is something that's always been around to draw activity to the property, to get eyes on it, and in theory, bring up the price. Um, client has called me about two different properties here over the last couple of days, and both of them looked to me that they were priced under market value based on where comparables were, based on you know where the market is today. And called agents on both of them, both of them getting a lot of activity, both of them. One of them had multiple offers already, so I don't know. I think that the homes that are seeing the price reductions are the ones where people are trying to really shoot for a higher price. Whereas the majority of people, well, I can't say the majority of people, I'm not seeing a lot of huge price reductions out there in the market. If, if anything small, um, you know, one, maybe 2% type thing. Um, nothing, nothing really more than that at the moment. 
the things that I see with big price reductions, Jeb, it's kind of like what you're saying. They were, they were priced inappropriately to begin with. A, a buyer who, uh, or a seller who really loves their house. Maybe there was a, another much nicer, more upgraded home in the neighborhood. Um, I had a client call, wanted me to help him get pre-approved. And he says, yeah, our agent thinks that we can get about one six, one seven for our house. And I'm like, I know where you live. You can't get one six or one seven. And I pull up you know, a map and look at the comps and the next street over three houses, sure enough, sold for 1.6. Well, those are architecturally significant homes. Uh, for those of you who are familiar, it's a Eichler. Eichler was a famous mid-century modern architect. That pocket sells for about 25% more than homes around it. He was going to list his home for $1.6 million and they would have gotten no interest. So there's a million reasons why um, you can you can see bigger price reductions, but we talked earlier in the show, we're also seeing bidding wars on properties that are unique uh, and have uh, interest to buyers above and beyond just a standard home that might be more easily found. All right. Uh, World Trekker says, how long after buying a property do I need to keep it as a primary and be able to keep my prop 60-90 tax base before turning it into a rental? Um, I'm not familiar with you having to keep your property as for a certain period of time to be able to keep the prop 60-90. Um, is that something, Josh? Do you have to keep it? I mean, only capital gains do you have to keep the property for two years to avoid any capital gains. When you buy a property, you're buying it at whatever the price is. Your property taxes are based off when you buy so, that property. Again, yeah. we're confusing the crap out of anyone not in California. Yeah. Um, the Prop 60 and 90 were the recent changes. And what I believe he's asking, no. if you inherit a property. That's Prop 19. So it's Prop 19. <laughs> I was saying if you inherit the property, you now have to own or occupy to be able to keep that tax rate or tax uh, assessed value. And so that was the only thing I was thinking. But you're 100% correct that they don't have to live in the property. Um, you're not going to get reassessed for turning your property into a rental. Yeah. Um, 6090 is a transfer either in county or out of county um, here in California. So in so California, they're, they're gone, you, though, because that that was replaced by 19, where you can go any county you want. 60 and 90 was the the counties had to opt into that. Now, anywhere in, in California, you can take it with you. That That's fair. Yes, that is correct. Um, and so and yes, again, in yeah. case you're, you're somewhere else going, well, why don't these guys know what they're talking about? It's complex and they've changed it like four times in the last two, three. And years. it pertains only to California. Um, so to answer your question, you don't have to keep it as a primary for any period of time to keep that tax basis. Um, just FYI that I'm aware of, but talk to an accountant, CPA, somebody that knows taxes uh, just to confirm. Um, <laughs> Josh. Andre asked a question about credit bureaus hitting your credit. Which credit bureau hits your credit? How many points does it bring your credit down? And if you want to get multiple quotes, does each one impact your credit? So Josh, if you run somebody's credit, do you run it on all bureaus? Do all bureaus have an impact on that score? So if we want to run it through the automated underwriting system, we need to get all three bureaus. It's okay if you don't have one of those bureau scores, but we can't just pull one or two and run it through because I think we're hiding something that may show up on one of the other bureaus. Um, in general, inquiry hits are vastly overstated. For anyone with good credit, generally talking a couple, two, three, four, five points, and it usually heals fairly quickly. The second part of the question, we get this one all the time. In terms of shopping for a loan, you have a 45-day window. I'll put the CFPB link in here where they tell you you have a 45-day window. You can pull 900 mortgage inquiries if you want, um, and it's only going to be treated That's as a, a single inquiry. 
Yeah, that, I, would and, I wouldn't and, recommend 900. That's well, it's it's less likely it's less likely to happen now. We've talked about this on the show as well. Um, we saw about a 150% increase in the cost of credit reports. So you don't want your credit pulled a bunch of times. We don't want to pull it a bunch of times. It costs 80 to $100 to pull that credit report. So unless we are likely to transact in the near future, or we absolutely have to have the certainty of getting that credit report and running it through, there's ways to do soft pulls, get the information uh, in, in a different way so that we're only incurring that cost when you're actually ready to, to get the loan. But like I said, I'll put the link over here. You've got a 45 day window to pull as many as you want for people with good credit it's going to have a very limited impact uh, on your score and i wouldn't i wouldn't not have my credit pulled because i was worried about the the decrease due to an inquiry all right good stuff so we've been on 1 hour uh as of now I'd like to ask a favor if you find any value in the content that we talk about we answer your question um you like being here you like hearing josh slurp out of that straw or you're jealous because he has an in and out cup do me a favor hit the like button Helps the YouTube out algorithm, helps get the video out there in front of more people. Um, and also listen to the podcast. If you haven't listened to the podcast, there's a podcast. There might be a YouTube channel with the podcast videos that you can go watch too for the educated home buyer. So if you're inclined, go check that out as well. Uh, and then there's a scroll across the bottom of the screen where you can go and find a lender anywhere in the country. If you're listening on the audio, it's in the description of the video. So Josh, there is a good question here, a really good question. As far as I'm concerned, the best question tonight, because I couldn't answer it myself. Um, actually, the question's a little bit different than the question I had, but I'm going to read their question and I'm going to ask mine, but you have changed. Oh, here it is. Gene says, what if I got a long closing on March 30th? Do I still get the new MIP reduction? So they're talking about FHA today has reduced the monthly mortgage insurance premium from 85 basis points down to 55 basis points when you're doing a loan amount under 726200 and you're only putting 3.5% down, okay? So then most people will get the, the reduction in basis points. So you have to get a case number, my understanding is a case number, pulled on March 20th and or after March 20th. So my question, Josh, is if... I went to you and we started my loan process today and today it's February the 22nd and I don't close, let's just say until March 30th, let's use the same closing date. You're going to pull my FHA case number soon because I got a property in escrow, but we're going to close after the 20th. Am I still eligible or am I not? Because I have a case number prior to that date. Well, we can always request a new case number. Let's say let's okay. let's say we started escrow last week. We can cancel that case number and request a new one after March twentieth. Um, the the verbiage of the of the uh, the mortgagee letter that the FHA put out says um, case numbers endorsed on or after March twentieth. So I'm not saying you're wrong because a lot of times uh, FHA does do that. You cannot issue the case number until after that date. But I would definitely want to check and confirm that that is the case on this one. But March 30th, let's assume that you're right, that we would need a case number issued after March 20th. 
it would be really tight there because most uh, lenders and appraisers are going to require that case number to get the appraisal ordered. It, it's part of that appraisal process. So getting that in that last little 10 day window would really be difficult. I would hope and think that a seller, if that were the case, would cooperate with delaying closing a little bit to facilitate that because it is a big difference. Well, well, let me ask this question and let me ask it a little bit differently. When you get an FHA case number, when you order an appraisal, you need an FHA case number. What happens when you go and change the case number? That the appraisal is associated with the prior case number. Does the new does the appraiser now change the case number on the appraisal, or do you need a new appraisal? They should be able to change it because okay. the the it runs with the case number, but it runs with the property. The appraisal runs with the property. So, okay. I if if the, you have a listing, Jeb, and, and I have a buyer that's borrowing from me, we're doing an FHA loan, and it falls out of escrow, and we have that case number. A new borrower is going to need that same case number. But I believe in this situation, we would be able to cancel the case number and get a new one issued um, solely for this purpose. HUD's going to be dealing with this a lot because no one's going to want, because, hey, a property went into escrow in January, fell out in February, and I'm closing April 15th. I don't want to pay a higher mortgage insurance premium just because there was a previous case number issued, which would normally run with the property. No, good stuff. And I actually filmed a video on this whole thing today, uh, giving some examples of, of, you know, the reduction and all that good stuff. Not sure when it's going to post. We'll find out soon enough. Uh, let's see. Midnight uh, Real Estate has a question. It says, where do we see happening with the federal funds rate this year? So earlier in the uh, the the video tonight, we talked about the live. We, we discussed what the Fed is predicting. Um, at the moment, they're predicting another three quarters in, in raises, if you will. So we're looking at March. Three, three quarter point hikes. Oh, yes. Well, I, whatever I said was not correct, clearly. Uh, March is the next meeting. Quarter percent is what is baked into the cake. May is the, the following meeting. So April skips April. And then June, there's a meeting. So between those three meetings, they're talking about 75 basis points. Now, there's a lot, Josh, of very smart people out there that prior to the latest inflation reading thought that that the the, the last hike would be in would be in March, that we weren't even going to see a May hike. And now they're talking about hikes as, as late as June. So for me to go out here and predict what I think doesn't really mean a lot uh, because there are people a lot smarter than me that follow this sort of thing uh, a lot more closely and have intel that I don't have that are on both sides of the coin. But at the moment, I think that the Fed wants to, to do what they've been telling the market. So I'm going to go out and say that they're going to raise uh three, the next three meetings, um, by quarter percent. But does that really mean anything? It doesn't. I mean, let's be honest. Well, Josh, Jeb, yeah, no, no, let's, let's talk about this. What does the fed keep telling us? We're going to be data dependent right now with the data that we have today. I think taking what I think the markets wager, the fed funds futures market, um, has wagered correctly. That's the only thing you can assume. The part that, again, I still have a problem with, I don't think we're going to see any cuts this year. But if I were a betting man, I'd say we're going to get three more quarter point hikes for a total of three quarters. And then they're going to sit for an extended period of time and watch it. Now, if we get some really low inflation numbers showing inflation moderating, maybe more importantly at this point, we see some weak jobs reports. Unemployment rate goes a little bit higher maybe they don't get all three quarters of them. I don't think we're going to see any cuts this year, um, but we're looking at two, probably three more hikes. And again, data dependent, we go the other way. Let's say we have some bad surprises that, uh, you know, unemployment goes down to 2% and inflation ticks back up. 
Could they get aggressive again? Yeah, they could. But with the data that we have available now, what Jeb said is everyone's best guess and the market's best guess. And if you ever wondered whether John was talking to you or talking to me, he's clearly laid it out tonight when he says both old guys are on tonight. So, John, we appreciate you being here every week. And, dude, I feel I feel old. I feel old. Got bags under my eyes, bro. I don't recover anymore. It's not good. It's not good. Jeb, Darren, Darren came to our defense and told John that it depends on your perspective. From a teenager's perspective, they're two old guys on a podcast. From my perspective, as a man in his 50s, they're two young whippersnappers. So I tend to agree with Darren. I I don't. Um, I concur. How's that? Uh, I don't know, I guess, uh, says I have sold my house and sitting on all of the equity. Would it benefit me to rent for a year under current conditions and wait out the upcoming storm Raleigh market? So here's the thing. I, I don't know. Um, I am from North Carolina. Uh, I go back to North Carolina a couple times a year. I have friends in Raleigh. I spend time in Raleigh while I'm there. Last time I was there, which was October, Market had slowed, but people were still buying homes. Not a lot of, you know, available inventory, you know, considering the circumstances compared to years past. You know, Raleigh is one of those places that is going to, in my opinion, going to continue to see people want to move there from states, say, like California, high cost areas, New York, some of these other markets, because the climates, yeah, you have four seasons, but a little bit more moderate than, you know, the rest of the country still somewhat affordable uh, on, on a national basis. So, you know, um, politically kind of somewhere in between, um, you know, being a red and or blue state because uh, you have a, a mixed demographic there. So I, I, I think that, you know, do you see a pullback there? You could, uh, but I would imagine because of the time of year here over the next couple of months, that market's probably going to pick up because it's that time of year, right? People season spring is the best time to be um in north carolina spring and fall right uh, you don't want to be there in the middle of summer and right now it's probably a little chilly outside so i would imagine the market's going to pick up a little bit the question of renting versus owning it, i don't know that there's a big hurry to run out and buy a property but with that said you know if you're renting are you still looking to buy or are you just waiting until that lease is up and then starting to buy because you know, there could be some opportunities in the market uh, if you're willing to rent for a period of time and then maybe potentially cut that lease short and buy something. That might be the best option for you. What's your alternative otherwise? I mean, if you're not leasing and you're sitting on equity, are you living with family? What's your plan now? Because there's a lot going on there. Uh, but if, if you're expecting a crash in the market, I don't know. I, first off, I don't think you're going to see that nationally. And, and Raleigh is one of those markets because of job growth, because of the things that I mentioned earlier, people wanting to be there. I think that market is less um, susceptible to, to, you know, big declines. Um, it's more affordable, Jeb, than, than other areas. It had more wiggle room to absorb the increase in interest rates that we've seen and increase in home prices. So strong economy, strong jobs, um, more affordable, like I'm sure anyone that wanted to buy in Raleigh five years ago is saying homes aren't affordable anymore. So relative to five years ago, they're not, but relative to more expensive places, it is still more affordable. So it puts a floor under the, the likelihood of, of a downturn. And Jeb, when I see a question like this, I always ask someone, how much are you going to hate renting? Some people go, well, not at all. I'll rent a nice house in a nice community and it'll be a different change of pace and I'll love it. And if that's the case, like you said, not a huge 
risk of, of home prices accelerating in the next year, take your time. Maybe you're not sure where you want to live. Go rent in the community and test it out for a year. As Jeb always likes to point out, Dave Ramsey says it buys you patience. Patience to figure out exactly what you want. Patience to see what happens in the market. Um, you know, the, the only person that, that I would say shouldn't do this is the person that just goes, I can't imagine renting. I would hate to pay someone else to not be able to paint my house pink or do whatever I want in the yard, plant roses, whatever that may be. So know yourself and, and what your comfort level is with being a renter versus a homeowner. But other than that, not a huge rush to, to go out and make a decision right away. Well, you know, you know, my, so my family and I, like I said, we go back a couple of times a year to North Carolina, um, or I do at least sometimes the family comes along just because of how short the trips are or whatever. So we went back in October, we spent a week there. We kind of traveled from Eastern North Carolina, which is where I'm from all the way to Charlotte because I have friends in, in Raleigh and in Charlotte and we kind of, you know, kids are playing together and doing all this fun stuff. So my kids fell in love with North Carolina because they got to run around. They got to do all these fun things that you can't do here in Southern California, at least where we live, shoot guns and, you know, just do crazy stuff, right? And play in the woods and all of that good stuff. So they're like, we're ready to move. Like we'll move tomorrow. My wife, surprisingly enough, said, I would consider it as well. And I was shocked. I was like, huh? Are we, you would really move back? And so I posed the idea, just, just kind of threw it out there. Didn't think anybody was truly going to jump on this. That's the only reason I even said it out loud. Otherwise, I would have just kept my thoughts to myself and said, you know what? We should rent a house there for a year. We should just rent a house there. We'll keep the house in California. I'll come back, do some work, and we'll rent out there. My wife immediately goes online, starts researching houses down the street from other friends. And you can find a really nice house for a hell of a lot less than I pay on my mortgage here in California to rent. Um, and they were, I don't know how serious, but they said they were like ready to pull the trigger. And dude, I was the one that shied away. I was like, eh, I don't think I could do it. I can't leave California weather to go back there. And then today it's one degree outside, 7 million mile an hour winds. And I'm thinking it might have been a good idea, Josh. That's all. If you didn't know, temperature dropped from seven to one since we started this, and the winds really picked up. If you were listening, it's, it's brutal. It's brutal here in Huntington Beach. Oh, you have no idea. Um, where are we, Josh? Where are we? Pick something. Here we go. Well, hold on. Steve has asked this question a couple times here. He's been super patient, so I want to get back to it. Question, how uh, how many types of HELOC? I have a HELOC from Orange County Credit Union. That's a local credit union, surprisingly, here in Orange County, Jeb. And they said it's a variable rate and changing quarterly. Isn't, the, isn't it locked the rate for 10 years after you draw it? So important question here. HELOCs are generally from depository institutions. They lend their own depository funds and they make their own rules. So Steve, everything you said can be true, but it doesn't have to be true. So you said something here that uh, they said it's variable rate and it changes quarterly. Most of them change monthly. So they do it quarterly. Their, their money, their rules. Say, isn't it locked the rate for 10 years after you draw it? Some lenders will allow you to do that, but not all lenders will allow you to do that. So for you, it's important to know what Orange County's credit union, um, their rules are, because they're going to tell you, can I borrow it and lock it? Do I want to lock it at current terms? If I lock it, can I ever float it down? Or I'm just locking in at the current high rates. So those are the things that you want to know. All HELOCs are essentially the same in that you get a line of credit, just like your credit card, you know, $50,000, $500,000, and you can borrow against it and pay it down during an initial draw period. 
I actually have lenders that have a draw period as low as one year, as long as 15 years. Most common is 10 years. So you can borrow against and pay it down, borrow against and pay it down, making interest only payments for the first 10 years. Not all of them are interest only. Some of them, you actually make principal payments on them and they'll give you a little better terms because there's less risk to them. So again, every lender is making their own rules. And then what happens after that drop period, you have to get to a repayment period. They don't allow you to borrow anymore, whatever the balance is at the end of 10 years, 15 years, two years, five years, whatever their drop period is, the balance at the end of that has to get amortized over the remaining term of the loan, which also can vary based off of the lender. So if you're considering a HELOC and you're talking to your bank, your credit union, find out what their rules are. If you don't like their rules, check with a couple of other banks or credit unions because they all kind of vary a little bit. Um, rates are going to be pretty darn similar. Um, you had asked, is seven and a half a good rate? Um, is seven and a half a good rate? Is it a, a real rate or is it a teaser rate? Right now, um, the prime rate, which most of these loans are tied to, is 7.75%. Most lenders in California won't give you prime plus zero, meaning no margin added to that prime. So most of them are going to be three quarters to 3% higher than what prime is based off of your qualification. So no definitive answer to these questions like there are to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA loans. But I know Orange County's credit union, they, they're probably in the ballpark of what most other uh, credit unions are offering. So go back and ask them those questions or look into your home equity line of credit agreement. It's essentially the note for a home equity line of credit, and it will answer all these questions for you. All right. Uh, Raul says, does a property on an Indian reservation land sell like traditional property or are there special restrictions? So I don't know this to be fact because I've never sold one on an Indian reservation or had the opportunity to, to be around it or really hear about it. But my guess would be there would be some sort of restriction because a lender, if they're going to finance that, um, if it's a cash sale, a little bit different, right? Um, you, you need to check title and see what, you know, the, the Indian reservation has access to. There could be some restrictions, that sort of thing on the prelim. I mean, you need to really pay attention to that. I assume there's, you know, you still deal with the title on these sort of thing. But with, with financing, a lender wants to make sure that they're putting a loan on a property that they're not going to have issues with uh, in the future. So there can be no restrictions there that would limit the lender from being able to take that property over if at which point they needed to do. Um, and there might be. So I, I can't say for sure. And I would imagine each one of these reservations kind of does things a little bit differently in how they you know, and how they uh, sell property and, and what they have access to and all of that stuff. So it's probably going to be different for each one. Uh, the reason I bring that up about financing is because like if you here in California or in Huntington Beach, rather, there's a couple of communities that are on lease land. Why is that important? Well, the the people selling the property don't own the land underneath that property. So the lender doesn't want to finance a piece of property that at some point in the future, that 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 they may not have access to it might transfer names somebody else might buy it or whatever and be able to do something demolish the property do whatever and so it's just you know there's no straightforward answer here and josh have you ever ran across an indian reservation deal no what i do know is a lot of times the reservations don't want to sell land so they're leased land which complicates it um hud does have uh, indian loans I don't, I, I'm here, I'm going to plead ignorance on this. I don't know, does that mean you have to be a member of the reservation to qualify for it? Do you have to be uh, Native American to qualify? I don't know. I do know they offer programs and I believe Fannie Mae has an alternative as well. But 
lots of, of details in there. So if you have a specific property um, in mind, reach out to the realtor that's that's offering the property and ask them about the financing and see if they can point you to someone with expertise because it's definitely very specialized and not something that everyone um, would have knowledge of. I, I certainly don't. No, no. And, and same here. Uh, Joyce asked the question, sellers usually pay for real estate agent fees at the end, right? Is it normal for the agent to have separate $400 agent fees for the buyer after a home purchase? The easy answer is no, that is not normal. It's not something that I've never charged the buyer anything on a transaction. And I've been doing this a very long time. So uh, no is the answer. What, what I will say, Jeb, it's not common, less than 10% of contracts I see is coming over. But um, I have seen agents adding uh, either transaction coordinator fees. We talked last week on the mortgage side, we saw something that was a little bit crazy. On someone's loan estimate, a $200 Encompass technology fee. Well, that's the technology I have to pay for to do loans. I don't get to pass that along to my borrowers. It's part of my overhead. Um, but there was someone doing it. Well, there's agents who have decided that, hey, I need a transaction coordinator or um, someone else in this. I have a technology fee. I've seen a technology fee. I've seen a transaction coordinator fee. Hopefully, there's enough in that transaction that the agent can cover that. But it's it's not all that unheard of to see more and more agents, although a small minority, trying to pass that charge on to borrowers, buyers. There you go. Good, good. Um, let's see. Jay Homeboy says, let's say you're moving. How do you decide what to keep and what to donate and throw out? I think it's to each his own, man. Um, you know, I have people that keep everything, everything they keep. But at the moment, like I have a client who's lived in her house 57 years. Um, this is a property that I was talking about earlier in the show, selling it off market. She's donating a lot of stuff, getting rid of a lot of stuff. The things that she's keeping are the things that are sentimental to her. Uh, her husband happened to pass away. Her late husband passed away about a year ago. And so like anniversary gifts, he bought her some furniture in there. Even though it's outdated, most people wouldn't want it. She wants to keep it because it means something to her, you know, that, that to each his own. There's, there's no good way. But I will tell you that uh, anything that is in decent shape doesn't even have to be in decent shape. You just put free on it and put it on like Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist. Somebody will pick it up. Somebody will pick it up if and likely resell time, it. If you're having a hard time selling it, just say free and you'll have 900 people. Oh my you goodness. In six you minutes. Do. Yes. And they will come get it in like five minutes. It's they'll before they ever respond, they're at your door. It's Jeff, amazing. Yes. There is a, there is a right answer to this question. What is so it? you take, you take each item, you gather them, you pick it up and you look at it and you say, does this item bring me joy anymore? And if it brings you joy, you keep it and organize it. And if it doesn't bring you joy, you dispose of it or give it away. So is this, it is joy this, to uh, else. Some, what's that lady's name that, that does Marie Kondo, is the life changing joy or the life changing magic of tidying up. Or did you just Google that right now? No, no. I bought the book for my wife who absolutely doesn't need this. The no, tidiest she person definitely in the history of the world, but she, uh, she thought it was, it was, awesome and amazing to that someone had built a philosophy around her way of living my Dude. wife doesn't actually look at it and say does it give me joy my wife looks at this and says have i used this in the last five minutes no it is out of here that's fantastic fantastic way of thinking i love it all right um um you know this one uh, yeah i'm not even going there with that uh karen Karen has a comment, just says, appreciate you putting this type of video and live chats for us. Super informative. 
informative. Appreciate you being here. Appreciate you being part of the show. Um, that's why we're here, right? To provide education. Uh, so if you find any value, be sure to let us know by hitting the like button. If you're listening on audio, rate it, review us, all that good stuff. Is that Karen making the awesome volleyball spike there? Or is that Karen's daughter, Karen Jr.? You'll never know. You'll <laughs> never know, Josh. You will never know. Uh, there, there's yeah. actually a good question here, and it comes back. Um, some additional detail we can give in this. So free ACC, um, how would you choose the best lender after you got your offer accepted by the seller? What are the things to look out for? Um, so so best is 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 one of those words that means something different to everyone, Josh. You think best so means lowest what, rate? What, what criteria should fall under that category when you're deciding uh, what's the best lender for you? Are you asking me? Yeah, I'm asking you. Well, there's a podcast episode, Josh, where you could actually go over exactly what's here. Now, um, rate, right? Need to look at rate. Need to look terms. at rate, terms. Rate, rate and fees. Terms. Right, rate and fees. Uh, but in, in addition to that, experience, uh, expertise, like being able to actually get somebody on the phone that can answer your questions. And that sounds very like you know, um, like we're tooting our own horns over here or that you should only work with people like us. And the reality is that's the truth. Um, you know, the person offering the lowest rate and the lowest fees, that's great. If you are a super cookie cutter transaction, nothing to it, uh, then in some cases it's easy for them to, to get the loan done. But the majority of the time, there's something in a transaction that needs a little bit of help, a little bit of expertise, um, and it needs some hand holding, and you need somebody that can give you competitive terms, right? If if somebody is a full, you know, percent off, then yeah, they're not competitive. But if if you're competitive and you're offering, you know, expertise, your communication's great, you're doing all of those things, then that's what I think you look for um, in in how in having to choose the best lender, because you could go to a credit union and get good rates. Sometimes you can go online and search for somebody and get really good rates. But I can tell you with both of those, you're likely not working with an expert. You're likely working with an order taker, somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. They're having to get the answers. And for some people that's okay. But for other people, I would hope for the majority of people that's not. So let me add a couple things there, Jeb, just sort of what I tell people when they're making this decision, terms are important. If you knew for a fact, you could find the world's greatest loan officer but his rate was 1% higher than everyone else. And you paid one point more in loan fees. That guy is not worth it. No one is worth that. And I have people in our industry that are really good. And they tell me, oh, I'm amazing. And my team does this and our technology. Cool. You're not that much better than anyone else to be worth the premiums that you guys charge. So they have to be competitive on terms, just like Jeb said. Communication and rapport. You are going to be dealing closely with these people for 30 to 90 to 180 days in, in certain markets. And you need to know that they're going to get back to you. They're going to listen to you. They're going to honestly and accurately answer your questions. And you feel comfortable asking difficult questions, telling them difficult, maybe sometimes embarrassing information about things that have happened in your financial past. So communication and rapport. And then the last piece, like Jeb said, knowledge and expertise. This sounds crazy, but if you want to call an escrow officer, call a wholesale account executive in the mortgage industry and ask, hey, most mortgage people, are they good at their job? Are they experts? Do they care for people? And they'll laugh and they'll tell you, no, 80 to 85% of them are not good and don't really um, have your best interests at heart, not out of, of malice, but out of just not being experts at this. 
that still tells you we've got plenty of people in our industry that if you find that top 10 to 15%, there's lots of them. Here in our building, we got a guy moving in three doors down. He's awesome. If you get with him, you're probably going to have just as good of experience as with me. But that's the exception rather than the rule. I came across Jeb in uh, in the Vetted VA forum yesterday. Someone asked a really interesting question. If someone was offering you the most amazing terms, but you knew that they were awful to work with, didn't communicate with you, and you had to follow up with them every time you needed something, would you put up with that? And a long stream of answers. Most people said, no, I would shop for someone that had good terms, really good terms, but offered the service levels that I expect. But there were a couple of people who says, well, how much are my savings? And there are people that look at it that way. And they'll say, for enough savings, I'll put up with a lot of bullshit. And if that's you, know that's your buying decision and you'll lean more towards the terms section of of that buying criteria. But for most people, they want a nice balance of all three of those things. And I think that the answer to that question, Josh, comes down to what you're buying, right? If you're buying a house, I'm less likely to put up with the BS um, you know, in the transaction, if I'm buying, you know, something a lot less expensive, I'm probably willing to deal with somebody's BS if, if I'm getting, you know, a little bit of savings here and there, but a house is too important. You need an expert to really be able to guide you through that. And you don't want to have to follow up with somebody, especially when you got earnest money deposit on the line that if they don't do their job, you could end up losing your deposit. That's a problem. And you need to make sure you're working with somebody that, you know, has the same, you know, goals in mind, has ethics, actually does their job as they're supposed to do it. Uh, but going back to what we were talking about earlier, Josh, with throwing things out that don't bring you any idea. joy. I love Falsificationism idea. says they throw out all the stack of unpaid bills. They bring me no joy. I, I like it. I get it. Um, unfortunately, me would be deleting emails. I'm not sure we get any bills uh, in the mail these days. I, I uh, once read a book, Jeb, that someone said that they were having a very hard time and almost on the verge of bankruptcy. And so what they did when their bills came in, they would open them up and pretend they were checks coming into them. So they changed it. And soon enough, there were checks coming bro, in. Bro, is this the secret? Bills. Were you watching the secret? Very, very similar. Very similar. Uh, I was just going to, did that really work? Did you tell yourself these bills are actually checks coming to me and magically checks started coming? I think you watched the secret. Uh, let's see. Gum Niche says, is it typical that rental prices come down before a housing crash? Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I've never, I've only seen one housing crash ever. Um, and rental prices were already lower. What brings rental prices down? I think is a better question. Uh, more demand, uh, more supply than you have demand for those properties. That's what brings rental prices down. At the moment, rental prices are coming down. There's still a they're still not like going negative, but they're coming down because they were at such high levels over the the last couple of years uh, that you're seeing them start to adjust a little bit more accordingly. But Josh, do you see rental prices come down before a crash? Um, it was a really good question. And my answer, my, my thought was, no, that's not the case. But here, let's, let's look at this. I actually pulled up, this is through... Um, the government's website here that shows us what uh, what rent prices have done. And with that, you can see here, we did have this dip where it was flat. What did we hit at 249 and it was flat for, what does that give us from 2009 through 2011? But, yeah, but really- the crash was already as, there. As long as they've tracked it, rents have not come down. So it doesn't really show. And we had rents flat at the beginning of the pandemic here uh, as well. So we've had periods where they've been flat, but we haven't really had a period where they, they go down. 
So does that mean that that's always going to be that way going forward? Not necessarily, but history is telling us you don't really see rents come down. Now, Jeb's answer is correct. Supply and demand. Has has there been a, a market or an area where, you know, people, you know, mass outflow of, of citizens like maybe California is having right now um, that, you know, if you have a city or a county where jobs or an industry suffers. You know, the, the best example in the early 80s, the oil industry in Texas, Houston got crushed. I would bet that their rents dropped. But barring something local where incomes are significantly impacted and there's more supply of rentals than there are demand for them, I think you're you're mainly looking at an extended period of flat rents versus a decrease. Uh, a Aguas has a good question and says, wondering if you have feedback or thoughts on the value of a home warranty program beyond the first year, realize it's completely situational, but would like, would like your overall thoughts. So most, in my opinion, most people that I've talked to and or comment on home warranties find no value in them whatsoever. And the reason for that is at some point they've had something go wrong. They've called the home warranty company and the home warranty company has basically said, we're not covering it for one reason or another. Um, and so like, like I've said in the past and talking about this, if you have a home warranty and you have an issue, your first call should be to your real estate agent, first off, because your real estate agent typically has the relationship with the home warranty company. So I can get things done by calling my account executive that they'll decline if you call. Crazy, I know, but understand they're an insurance company and they try to get out of as much as possible so they don't have to pay it. Um, and with that said, to answer the actual question though, do I find any value in them? I think there can be value in them depending on the age of what you're insuring in that property, right? So home warranties typically cover things like uh, appliances. Um, refrigerator, a lot of times is an added cost, but things like the, the heating, air conditioning, the HVAC, the water heater. Sometimes it can cover things like partial roof replacement, uh, plumbing, electrical. There, there are different things in there, but the high ticket items are typically, you know, appliances, water heater, furnace. If you have a pool, pool equipment, uh, you know, some, you know, that sort of thing. So what is the age of the things you're insuring? If, if you are having problems with them, then it might be worth paying for a home warranty. A home warranty can run you five, 600 bucks. If you have expensive property, maybe a thousand bucks. And how much is it going to cost you to replace those items, right? If your water heater is, you know, if you know it's going to cost you about 12, 1400 bucks to replace your water heater, which I think now is like two grand, Josh. I don't think you can get a $1,200 water heater anymore. I it's also like, heard from another realtor that they last like five or six years versus 15 yeah. or 20 now. Yeah. So if you need a home, you know, uh, if your water heater is about to go, two grand to replace it, but it's going to cost you $500 to renew, it's probably worth renewing. But I think each situation is a little bit different. Um, like you said, it's situational. I think it's situational for you as well, depending on whether or not you should consider it. If you have tenants in a property uh, or, or your rental property, I think it's worth it to have it on rental properties um, just because you can call somebody to go out and and deal with some of these issues, uh, especially if, if some of the stuff in the property is older. But just my thoughts. 
Jeb, I don't mean to put you on the spot if you don't yep. know this. How do deductibles come into play with this? What can you expect to pay when you have a valid claim? It's not free. They don't just come out and, and replace whatever you need. They're going to come check it out. You're going to pay a deductible. What does that look like and how does that impact the equation? You know, with the home warranty company I use, I, I don't know what their current price is because um, I, quite frankly, I just haven't paid attention to it recently, but it's usually somewhere around 65, 75 bucks. So you're paying that for them to come out and assess what is going on, regardless of whether they find a problem or not. Um, in which case, you know, say for example, air conditioning goes out or the, you know, the condenser goes out, pay 65 bucks. They come out and they say, yeah, your condenser's out. It needs to be, needs this part, needs to be replaced, whatever. At which point that cost is on them. But here's the caveat, things like refrigerators, right? Uh, you can have high ticket items. Say you have a built-in refrigerator, a GE monogram, a Viking, or one of those brands where the refrigerator is $15,000. Guess what? Home warranty company is not going to replace your $15,000 refrigerator for like for like. They'll give you a portion of that, in which case it's up to you to kind of come up with the difference and or accept their brand, which might be a little bit less. Um, and that doesn't happen all the time. And you might be able to pay up on some of these to get the full replacement. Uh, but more often than not, it's uh, it's you're paying that just that deductible up front and they're covering a portion of it, just like your roof. If you have a portion of your roof, you know, that needs to be replaced, they're not going to replace your whole roof. They're going to replace the portion that is leaking right then up to a certain square footage, at which point anything beyond that is up to you. So, Jeb, we've got a couple of good comments here. I want to make yep. sure we get to. First of all. Hi, Dad. It's Nash. You're doing a good job. He liked your answer to the homework. <laughs> Dude, question. My, my biggest fan. My so I, I love it. I love Nash. Thanks for watching Nash. We appreciate it. Um, Rodrigo actually asked this earlier. We didn't get to it yet. So um, how high can closing costs go? My lender gave me a rough estimate with 7% interest on an FHA loan, 3.5% down, $17,500 for a $500,000 home. Are they robbing me at $30,000 for closing costs? So my first thought when you see your loan estimate and closing costs, your upfront mortgage insurance premium is going to be listed as a closing cost. So when you see that, it's not, it's financed, you're not paying it out of pocket, but that would be on a $500,000 purchase, $87.50. So now we're at $21,000. So it's $21,000 a lot for that. Yes, it is. Someone asked, well, does that include your down payment? Well, we see a $17,500 down payment if we, had that took that away from the 21250 it's only $4000 so i don't think it includes the down payment so is 21 22000 reasonable for a 7% interest rate on an fha loan in the current market it could be but it's probably not who could it be appropriate for if you have a 585 credit score and we have to pay some points to to buy it down to 7% could be possible. But for most people, you should have a lower rate than 7%. You should not be paying any points. So your closing costs on that $500,000 purchase, anywhere from four to six or $7,000, it's a pretty wide range, but let's say it's 6,500. Your prepaids this time of year should be about the same, 6,500. Should be about $13,000 plus the 8750 there for the upfront mortgage insurance premium of, of 21,000. So there's a little bit of wiggle room. And again, I'm making an assumption here that you're in California. There are states with higher closing costs, but it sounds like those are high closing costs. Those are high interest rates. So as Jeb always likes to say, we've got a nice little crawl here at the bottom of the screen. If you want a second opinion, 
Use that link. Jeb will refer you to someone, depending on where you're at, an expert that can do loans there. And I'll tell you this, I get second opinions from the show all the time. And if someone else is doing a good job with you, you don't want to start the process over. I'm going to go through it. I'm going to look at those numbers and we're going to say, hey, everything's good here. You're in good hands. Go ahead and close with them. Or, hey, everything looks good. Maybe this is a little out of whack. Ask the lender this and see if they can help you. And then the last one I had here, Jeb, is A. Aguas says, thanks as always. You walked me through purchasing my first home transaction. It's just too bad I found you while I was already in escrow. So again, if you're here and you found Jeb in the channel before you're in escrow, you can use that crawl there to get connected to Mr. Jeb or a lender that can help you or a realtor wherever you are in the country. Both of us have pretty big networks there that, that we can get you to someone who can help no matter where you're at. Yes, yes. So if you're looking to buy, you need a real estate agent, need a lender, reach out. Would love to help. Would love the opportunity. And if you're wondering what my kids are doing tonight, soccer was canceled. YouTube because of high winds, I guess. Seven degree uh, temperatures, Deb. Jeb, seven degree temperatures. Is also, uh, it's it's now negative. It's negative outside. Uh, is also on YouTube, and uh, he also likes my videos. Hey, listen to that training these kids well to come in here and telling them to hit the thumbs up. You know, it's important. In fact, I watch videos. I, I watch YouTube with them. Sometimes we watch on the TV. I have to go in and like, like I hit the thumbs up for them because I'm like, we just watched an entire video. You guys did nothing. Like you didn't tell them. Again, the algorithm knows that you watched the whole video. That's a positive thing, but nobody hit the thumbs up. I go in and do that for them because I know it helps the channel out. You know, just where I'm at in my life, 42-year-old YouTuber. <laughs> hey, <laughs> ah, Jeb. I laugh when I say that. Ah, I'm crazy. Rodrigo actually followed up here. It says 750 credit, 10,000 monthly income, zero debt. Then follows up with, but I'm not providing two years of taxes due to disability and COVID. So here's the thing. You said FHA loan. You either qualify for the FHA loan or you don't. So not providing something, either you qualify without providing it or you don't qualify. So any lender that you're talking to, FHA guidelines are FHA guidelines. It's not that one lender for the most part will be able to do this. Now we do have, I'm a broker. We've got 40 different lenders we can send your FHA loan to. If it's in a gray area, there might be one or two that we could talk into something that the other 25 or 30 wouldn't. But for the most part, that's not the, the case there. So uh, it's important to, to note that. And he did say he is in California. And Jeb, we talked about, Josh was supposed to have a video prepared to show everyone this week about a new program that we have access to for most of you outside of California and outside of Southern California. Not gonna mean anything to you, but one of our lenders is an actual bank, a depository institution. They are governed by the Community Reinvestment Act. And if they're not lending in the communities where they have branches, they get in trouble. So we have a program right now, if you're in any of the six Southern California counties, so Orange and LA County, Riverside, San Bernardino, Ventura, or San Diego, and you meet income limits, which vary depending on home size or family size, but anywhere from $100,000 to $200,000 a year income with a four or five member family. And then the other requirement is the census tract that you are buying in has to be more than 50% minority. But if we have that situation, they will cover all of your closing costs and prepaids for you. Um, so... It's not a program that is available through everyone. It's our, we have one lender for that. They happen to have amazing rates and they're gonna cover your closing costs for you. So if you're in Southern California, you wanna look at either an FHA or a Fannie Mae loan that has the ability to cover your closing costs for you because a lot of people in the current market, high prices, 
it's hard to come up with closing costs on top of it and still hard to get sellers a lot of time to cover it. So if you're interested, again, use that referral link if you're in one of the six Southern California counties and would like more information on, on that program to see if you might qualify. All right. Patrick is a single dad in booming Wilmington, North Carolina. Second son heading off to college. So congrats for you there. Uh, thought to downsize to a smaller home condo that I could turn into a long-term rental in a few years. Thoughts? Not an awful idea. Um, you know, being in Wilmington, Wilmington obviously is a booming market. I think, you know, holding on to that property long-term is probably a good thing if you can afford to do it. Um, if you just think it's too much and you want to buy something else, I would I would still try to stay in that market just because I, I know the... Um, the potential of, of being in a market like that. And you're in a, you know, a college town, there's a lot going for it. So uh, I don't think it's an awful idea, but, you know, just have a plan, you know, sell and do what, um, you know, the smaller home, you know, buying that smaller home from where you are now, you know, what's your rate now? What are you going to, how much is it going to cost you? Are you paying cash? I mean, just run the numbers and see if it makes sense. And if it does great, uh, as far as a longer term rental, Wilmington's a great, uh, I'm sure a great rental market for a number of reasons. So there's an opportunity there. Obviously you need a lot more information to really be able to give you a detail, but I'm, I'm not opposed to the idea. Jim, I have a question on this one that you yep. may be able to shed some insight on is of degree from UNC Wilmington more valuable than an East Carolina degree, which, oh, is, absolutely. which is more valuable. Okay. I was just, checking. I, was just I checking. think, I think every degree is probably more valuable than an East Carolina university degree. Just kidding. Um, no, I think, you know, it depends on what you, there's, you know, ECU now has a, a hell of a medical program. Um, so, you know, you could graduate from ECU, be a doctor, and it could be a prestigious degree. But if you're just a measly computer science major, you know, not going to get you very far in the tech world. I don't think. Maybe it does. I don't know. I've never tried to use it. My, my new computer shows up tomorrow, Jeb. I'm you said today. Thing. You lied to me. You said no, today. They, they lied to me. About three in the afternoon, they said your your delivery date has been updated. So were, tomorrow, were you let down? Was, Did you, I was you? very let down. Yeah, I, was, I, I wasn't waiting for it. I was out and about, but I saw it and it, it upset me. But right. tomorrow, we're going to put your computer science degree to uh, to the test. We're not doing any programming. <laughs> my my degree is not going to go to the test. But if there were a test, I would fail it. Absolutely. I think I could probably type a program up that says, hello world, like the very, the thing you learned the very first day. Uh, outside of that, I know nothing. I learned right. how to use the DOS version of Excel when I was in college. Does that count? You know, maybe you might be able to, you know, if you could still use it, I would give that to you. Uh, let's see. Alex says, got a good price on a new construction, but they haven't even broke ground. Closing is estimated to be in September. When should I look to lock a rate with it being so far away? So Josh, can you lock a rate, uh, with a closing date of September and thoughts on when you should start considering locking? New construction is unique. And we have a follow-up question here also related to new construction that we can answer after this one. But new construction is unique in that builders have an incentive to try and hold these deals together. Many of them own their own lenders or have tight affiliations with lenders. So find out if they offer extended locks, what they could lock for you today. You know, last spring when rates started going up, I had a lot of builders lenders saying, hey, lock the rate with us. And if later on you can get a better interest rate, no harm, no foul, you've covered yourself both ways. They don't want that. They're going to try and keep your business, but it is a good way to hedge against the potential of higher interest rates. I think rates will be better in September, but I certainly can't guarantee that to you. And a lot of people, if rates go up a quarter, a half, 
three quarters of a percent, they no longer qualify for that mortgage. So see if the builder's lender can get you locked in at terms that make sense and are good today. That way your worst case is acceptable. And then as you get closer to closing, you can shop that around and either they can let you float down to current market interest rates, or you can move to another lender as you get closer to closing. But Jeb, the, the follow, yeah, you got it there. The follow-up, Rickolas Cage says, can lenders unaffiliated with builders ever match or beat builder incentives? Prior to the spike in interest rates last year, I would say we could beat them nine times out of 10, if not more, because it was smoke and mirrors. They were going to say, hey, we're going to give you this incentive, but you look at the terms, the terms suck. And then they would try and match an outside lender if you forced them to, and people would just get tired of the games. What I can say in the current market, builders have a strong incentive to keep transactions together. And they know, for the most part, a window when these homes are going to be available. So they can tell the lender, hey, we need a forward commitment to deliver X number of dollars of 30-year fixed mortgages within this window. So they can, if rates go up or remain elevated, offer really good terms. So I had a, a couple of deals last year that we just lost to a builder's lender. And that's not something I'm used to. And there was no world in which we could compete with it. We looked everywhere under the sun and there was nothing there, but that's not common. So in the current market, I think you owe it to yourself. The, the builder is going to make you talk to their lender. So you owe it to yourself to compare. You know, we say you don't need to check with 50 different lenders, two or three. Well, you get the builder's lender, you get a good outside broker, compare those two numbers and see which works best for you. I like it. That should be a short, Josh. Mark that time, 646. <laughs> uh, let's see here. World Trekker with all this negativity about California, uh, where people can't afford lots of help. Where do you see California being in 10 to 15 years? I didn't understand part of the question. So I just went to where I did. <laughs> uh, good part. Yeah. So, Cal you know, people are always going to want to live in California. Yeah. It has its issues. I mean, politically, you know, super majority, all of that good stuff. The cost of living sucks. Uh, some areas have a homeless problem, but the weather, the weather, people are here for the weather, man. The weather, the beach, the access to different geography. Last Thursday, woke up five o'clock in the morning, got in the car, drove my kids, surprised them, drove my kids to the mountains. We skied all day, snowboarded all day, got back in the car and drove home and was at the beach in the same day. Could have gone out and gone surfing had we wanted to. You can't do that in a lot of places. And for that reason, you're going to have people that always want to be here. Yeah, there, there's going to be people that are going to leave for all the reasons listed oh, above absolutely. for for other reasons. You know, we, we got people leaving. There's lots of valid reasons. What I think is funny is the media 18 months ago was trying to say, oh, the exodus from California was greatly exaggerated. And then my Google feed in the last month, you see what half a million people left California last year. And does it even put a dent in the population? No, we're still overpopulated. So like I, the I fourth largest economy in the world. Yeah. Nothing's yeah, going to change it's that. It's nuts. I saw a stat that one in eight people in the U.S. live in California. Live in, live in California. Or live in L.A. It was some some ridiculous stat. I think it was one in eight people that live in the U.S. live in L.A. Or some. I have to look it up. I, let me let me go back to you. It's either California or L.A. But either way, I was astounded by the number. I was like, "What in the hell?" Uh, anyway, here we go, Josh. Um, what do you think about somebody? Buying now with the idea of locking in a rate or whatever, with the expectation that they're going to be able to refinance in a couple of years. Is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? Well, Jeb, that episode that we just did on the podcast covering the loan estimate on page three, 
this was such an issue of lenders, loan officers telling people, I'll oh, just take it, tough it out. And in six months, we're going to get you a better rate. We'll refinance. They actually have a disclosure on page three of your loan estimate that says, remember, there is no guarantee that you will be able to refinance in the future. So would I count on it? No. Um, would I hope for it? Do I think that opportunity is going to happen? Yes, I do. But don't go into it saying, okay, I can scrape and scratch and claw. And for 12, maybe 18 months, I can make this payment, maybe subsidize it with some some, some of my savings. I, I would not go into it thinking that. Because my student loans aren't due, I can, I can make it happen. my student loans aren't due. No. But, I, so with that said, Josh, how many people do you actually think make it to page three on the loan estimate? Serious question. Zero, zero, because it's the worst. There's, It's the dumbest data. They give you your total interest percentage. No one cares. Um, there's just the things on there says, can your loan be assumed? Does your lender, is your lender going to service your loan? Um, most people will look at page one because it's page one. They're going through it. They'll look at page two because it starts to detail what they're paying and what the total cash to close. By page three, people are like, I know what my payment is. I know how much I have to bring in to close. I don't care what they're disclosing there. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, good question. I, I, I'm a, in agreement with Josh there that don't get a house now with the expectation that you're absolutely going to be able to refinance. It would be a nice luxury if you can, right? Nice to have, not need to have in order to be able to live your life and enjoy living in that house. Um, there's a lot of lenders at the moment selling the idea that you're going to be able to refinance in three years. And while I think there's an option, an opportunity for that to take place, you can't guarantee, none of that is guaranteed guys. And don't buy a house with the expectation that is going to happen for sure. Otherwise you could be putting yourself in a bad position. And I think that's really important to note. That could also be a short Josh, 650. Um, two, two, two. Where do you want to go, Josh? We got about eight minutes, five minutes, three minutes, whatever you think. Lynn T has a good question here. I'm looking to buy a house in about three months. Should I let my broker do a soft pull now before we apply for a loan? What information can they see from a soft pull? We can get all of the information on your credit report. Basically, what who do you owe? What are the balances? And what are the monthly payments? We're going to get a synthetic credit score. What we can't do with that is run the automated underwriting system and tell you, yes, you have an approval. From looking at that, I can generally tell it will or won't approve it, or we may be in this gray area. What I would say, if you want that certainty, your credit report is good for 120 days. Um, if you pull one now and you have to pull one again, I have a client that we first uh, pre-approved in September. She just got into escrow last week. We had to pull a new one because we were going to be past 120 days at the end. It's not a big deal. It's not the end of the world. For me, I value certainty. The the uh, soft pull is going to give you most of the information. They can give you a decent amount of certainty, but not the 100% rock solid certainty. Now we do have in the wholesale world, we do have a lender who claims to let us run automated underwriting with a soft pull. I haven't done it, don't know exactly how it works, but you may wanna ask your lender about that or the lender that you're considering working with. But you're gonna see more and more of this. There's gonna be more brokers, lenders, loan officers wanting to do a soft pull because I can get a soft pull for 10 bucks when it costs $100 to pull a full three bureau tri-merge mortgage report. Um, it, it, it's, it's funny again, in that same, uh, thread yesterday, a forum, someone said, is this normal? My, my loan officer asked me to pay $86 upfront for my credit report. And people tried to explain it is just a cost of doing business, but the reality is, especially in the current market, maybe only one of, depending on, on the quality of your inquiries, maybe only one in five people actually get a loan. So you're talking 
four or $500 that you're going to spend, you're only going to get reimbursed for the one that closes. So I think we're going to see more of that, more people trying to use soft pulls and, and putting that off just because it's a pretty big cost relative to historically, it's been 25 to $40 to pull your credit report. That is just a cost of doing business. If I pull five $25 credit reports and we close one, it's a good number. If I pull five $100 credit reports, I'm not super happy with that number. No, good stuff. Uh, BPT analyst is looking to purchase my first home, but I'm concerned with interest rates. What is your advice for someone like me, 26 years old, pre-qualified for 550? Do I buy now or wait? So what I would say is most people aren't concerned with rates, uh, more so concerned with house prices. If your concern is rates, then buy as soon as you find the right house, assuming you have a longer term time horizon, money in the bank, comfortable with the payment, all that good stuff that we talk about all the time. But best case scenario is rates go down. You can refinance. Worst case scenario, rates go up and you've locked in the rate that you're going to have for the rest of your life. So you don't have to worry about rates going up. But the reason I say most people think about home prices being the concern, because people think home prices are going to go down. I'm going to buy now. The house is going to be worth less in, you know, tomorrow, six months, a year from now. And that absolutely could be the case. Uh, some areas are more prone to it uh, than than other areas, or could, the potential is there for that to happen. So I would go into it with the idea of, can you find a house that you're comfortable with now with the payment? And is it the right time in your life to buy? And if the answer is yes, and you have, again, that longer term time, right? I think now is a good opportunity to buy a house. Would I rush out and do it tomorrow just because I think, you know, the next house that comes on the market is going to be more expensive? No. Would I wait six months because I think home prices are going to go down considerably? No. You know, it, again, it's all about finding the right property for you. And, and and I know it's so cliche to sound uh, to say that, but that's the reality is as long as you have a longer term time horizon, I'm not really concerned about what happens to prices of homes. Um, you know, just just be comfortable. I would say, yeah, what I would say, Jeb, is there is no rush. You're 26. You have time on your side. We're well past that point in the market where home prices are rapidly appreciating. That being said, it's sort of like the earlier you can start investing in a 401k, the more compounding and growth you have over a lifetime. Well, if you take out a 30-year mortgage, you can have the thing paid off by the time you're 56, assuming you don't move, move up, convert it to a rental. So I like the idea of getting started early. I also don't feel that you have any urgency that you have to do it. I also feel that by late spring, mid-summer, we're going to see slightly better interest rates. So if that is your decision, I don't think home prices are going to be vastly higher. I think interest rates are going to be better. You have time on your side to see and watch and let that play out. Agreed. But with that could come some competition too. So just know what you're getting into and what you're waiting for and the opportunity presents itself. Go for it. So with that said, been on almost two hours. We do this every Wednesday, almost every Wednesday um, from 5 to 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We appreciate you being here, letting us answer your questions. Uh, the goal with the channel, again, is to provide education, buyers and sellers, all that good stuff. So if you found any value tonight at all, hit that thumbs up. Uh, in addition to that, we do have a podcast. Many of you guys are aware of it. It looks like that little icon up there in the top right corner. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen. It's different from this. Uh, we do take this every Friday and put this on there, the audio, so you can listen back if you're inclined to do so. But if you want to deep dive into a topic real estate related, the last few that we've recorded, Josh, have to do with why deals fall out of escrow, how to prevent them happening to you. 
understanding the loan estimate. Um, what was before that? What do we talk about? Anything? Anything? Find, finding a deal. Finding a deal. In the How to find market. deals in the market. Uh, so there, go check it out. We're going to be talking about student loans, how they impact, uh, you know, your qualifications, all of that good stuff, uh, coming up here real soon, but either way, we appreciate your support. Uh, appreciate you guys showing up every week and, um, and being here with us, Josh, anything you want to add? No, um, just a follow up. If you're still around and you're in California, you were interested in that Prop 60 and 90 conversation earlier. It doesn't eliminate Prop 60 and 90. It says effective April 1, 2021, Prop 19 provisions potentially affect the former base year value transfers for persons age 55 and over that were added by Proposition 60 and 90 and 86 and 88. So I think 19 is what you want to look at. But the answer back to that question is. Um, you can convert it to a rental after you've moved into it and got your tax base transferred over to that new property without impacting it. All right. Well, there you go. Little uh, summary. But again, thanks, guys, for the support. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, Please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.